Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am your host, David Rothkopf. I'm coming to you from New York City, also in New York City, because it's that time of the week as my co-host, uh, Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School and Just Security. How are you doing, Ryan? Pretty well, David. Thanks a lot. And uh, our other uh, co-host and partner in crime on this at this time of the week, Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution, formerly of the Obama administration, a practicing uh, physician. How are you doing, Kavita? I'm, I'm good, and I have not taken a DNA test, eager to ask David his thoughts, so... We'll, we'll wow, DNA test. Okay, yeah. well, we'll get to that. And we are joined, as Kavita hinted at, uh, today by our, our friend and uh, the widely uh, respected and important journalist, David Korn uh, of uh, Mother Jones, also of his newsletter, The Land, which you can subscribe to at davidcorn.com. And there you will find analysis and politics and recommendations and uh, also, I'm told UFOs. Really, David? UFOs? Well, at least one of the first issues of, the, of this land newsletter did deal with a new UFO report that came out, which is a national security matter, as you know, David. And also, I worked in my one experience uh, witnessing something that was unidentified, that was flying, and that seemed to be an object. It seemed to be an object. It looked like an object to me. I, I'm still a skeptic. I am still very much a skeptic on all this stuff. But even though I thought I should share my one um, uh, one episode in which I was a witness to something that at least others around me thought was a UFO. Well, I'm going to subscribe for that reason alone. Yeah. Although I have yeah. to say, I thought the report on UFOs basically said the United States military has seen a bunch of unidentified flying objects and based on our analysis they were flying they were objects and they were unidentified and we have no idea what they were right um and like to me what, what i you know not to get back to the newsletter but what i wrote in the newsletter the new newsletter that you can sign up at at davidgorn.com would that be the um, land that i thought yeah. that in the end of the day the, the ufo report was not good news for UFO believers. And by UFO believers, I mean people who are looking for evidence of extraterrestrial <laughs> visitation in some form or another, because it basically said, yes, we acknowledge that these things are happening, but we know that there have been sightings. I saw one, other people have seen them, Navy pilots have seen it. We know that. They acknowledge it officially that there have been some things seen that can't be explained. They call them what, uh, uh, you know, aerial phenomena instead of flying objects but the way i think about it is we have you know you know this david we have this massive intelligence system with spy surveillance satellites you know we have the nasa faa uh intelligence agencies known that no one no most people have never heard about the national reconnaissance 
office, the National Geospatial Mapping Intelligence, whatever it is, and the NSA. And you would think that if people like me and others can spot these things once in a while, and they were zipping in and out of the atmosphere, that they would have been tracked and charted. You, I, I find it almost inconceivable that we know about what we have evidence of UFOs from outer space, uh, and that Donald Trump did not announce that <laughs> on a TV show at some point in the last four years. Um, I mean, Obama came out the other day and said, yeah, you know, these things are mysterious. We don't know what they are. So like, he was never told in eight years that we have evidence. So the fact that we have this massive surveillance system that hasn't really caught wind of this stuff, even if it's highly advanced technology, suggests to me that there, have, there has to be other explanations than the classic X-Files, Steven Spielberg. And I like you, Steven. I like your work a lot, um, especially Jaws, you know, the early <laughs> stuff. But um, that, that, that those explanations are probably not the correct explanations. Well, I have two things to say about this, and we've gone much further in UFOs <laughs> than I thought we would. One, um, uh, uh, everybody forgets, but Hillary Clinton said she would expose all this. And electing Donald Trump uh, <laughs> kept us from, from Hillary following through on that promise. And secondly, as anybody who follows Washington knows, there's plenty more of evidence of alien life and, you know, Gomert, Gosar, Gates, you know, there, there, there are people on the Hill who can't possibly be of human origin. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, politics here. Um, because all of us on this podcast, one way or another, for the past uh, several years, have been waiting for somebody in the Trump organization to be indicted. We've, we've been, you know, we thought at some point, you know, this is a criminal organization. They've done tons of things wrong. The New York Times writes articles about it. You can, you know, people, you know, have been indicted in the past for activities associated with it. This was going to happen. And so finally today, the Manhattan District Attorney um, uh, presented charges against the Trump Organization and um, uh, uh, its CFO and, um, you know, 15 felony charges. That sounds like a lot. Also might be a little uh, underwhelming to us. So I'm going to start with you, David, then I'm going to go to um, Ryan and Kavita and get your reactions just to this bit of breaking news. David. Well, I think it's highly significant. Obviously, the CFO of Trump's company has been accused of a crime and the company itself participating. And the company really is Donald Trump. He owns the company. It's not like he's the CEO in the way that you might not know what else goes on. He, he owns the company outright. You know, l'état et moi, that's what the Trump organization is. And I'm just you know, looking at my phone here because one of my colleagues told me, uh, Russ Choma, one of my reporters, that in court, the assistant district attorney said, quote, the former CEO, we know who that is, Donald Trump, signed himself many of the illegal compensation checks. To put it bluntly, this was a sweeping and audacious illegal payment scheme. So that indicates to me that in a way, and you know, Ryan maybe can get into this more because I'm not a lawyer here, that Trump is basically being pegged as a co-conspirator, whether they're calling him that or not. At the same time, I, I you know, did the math 
And they say $1.7 million in compensation was sort of hidden from taxation mm -hmm. for over 15 years. You know, taxes on that might amount to anywhere from 50 to $70,000 a year over 15 years. We know that the Trump family has basically cheated the American taxpayer out of tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of taxes. Go back to that wonderful story that New York Times did in October of 2018 about how they engaged, the Trump family engaged in fraud to get money from Fred Trump to Donald and his siblings without being taxed. I mean, and then the stories that came up more recently about the tax dodges that Eric Trump and others have been involved in more in, 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 in more recent years. So they have just you know, seems to have hornswoggled, one of my favorite words, uh, the American government out of tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. So this is small peanuts. I'm not even sure the Al Capone metaphor that everyone reaches for works here. But as, as of now, we'll see this is just the first indictment. And in cases like this, it's not the first indictment that counts the most. It's the last indictment. So, Ryan, I was watching the coverage of this. I watched on CNN. I watched on MSNBC. That's where I get basically get to see you guys when you're not on the podcast. And, um, you know, they had uh, Daniel Goldman on and he said, small potatoes. And I don't think there's going to be more against the Trump organization based on how this thing is written and how long they've had it. Um, and at the same time, they had David K. Johnson on, uh, who's been tracking Trump financial crimes for some time. And he said, I see this as the beginning of essentially some big organizational corruption case, um, uh, you know, akin to a big RICO case. Um, and so, you know, there in the course of 30 seconds, I had two completely antithetical pieces of analysis. Uh, Ryan, resolve this for all of us. Yeah, yeah, it's been breaking that way now for at least a couple of days with the anticipation of the charges that you've got one group of experts saying what Dan Goldman's saying and another group of experts saying the opposite. Um, so, and I think at some level nobody can know, right? But a couple indicators that Dan is wrong um, are that um, the New York Attorney General said explicitly the investigation continues. Um, I think the best experts on this are ones who have also worked at the New York level, not federal, former federal prosecutors. So the other person who was on today was Daniel Alonzo, a former federal and New York state prosecutor. I happened to listen to a couple of interviews he did in the last 24 hours and then what he said today. And what he said today is, this is much bigger than what the Trump defense lawyers told the press. And um, what Dan said to him was actually, there was one point was an exchange. Dan Goldman said to him, well, I don't see why you would indict the organization at the, at the beginning. That's what you do at the end. So that's why Dan thinks this is the end. Um, but I think that there are multiple reasons why they would need to and want to indict the Trump organization at the beginning. Part of it to make the grand jury uh, comfortable with having done so. Um, so Jennifer Talbot uh, said that on Twitter. And uh, so it's a psychological barrier for the, them to come over, to overcome. And that the Daniel said to him, well, I think the case against the corporation is so gigantic, so just like gigantically sealed <laughs> in the sense it's so strong, there's nothing they could really do to wriggle out of it. Uh, so that might be another reason. And just that they understand the atmospherics here. 
of the public perception of what's being done, I think starting out with the organization is important to informing the public of the direction of this and, and the implications of it. And um, how do they turn away from it? So I, I believe that Daniel Alonzo is the person who actually wrote uh, some of the guidelines of when they prosecute corporations. And he said, this just checks off all of the guidelines as to why you should prosecute a corporation. So they didn't necessarily have a choice to turn away from it. Um, so I think there's all of that. Um, I think the big other question that there's a little bit of a division among the experts, and it's not something I can claim expertise to at all, is the jail time that Weisselberg is currently facing, because that's the key. Um, if he is already facing a couple of years in jail, then he very, much, very well might flip. Um, and I've spoken to a former federal criminal prosecutor, and they say that this is how they would do it. They'd introduce small pieces first to see if they would flip and then build it over time. And we're only one month into a six month long uh, special grand jury. So they've got a lot of time. They seem to have set it up for that amount of time. And then just one last piece that did not get mentioned in the coverage that I saw and it's now getting picked up. Um, the indictment, I think one of the biggest surprises is it alleges a federal scheme to fraud, to defraud the federal authorities. And so the big question is after this, do federal, does the, do the federal authorities come next? Because how do they in some ways avoid what looks like such a rock solid case, even if the crimes aren't as significant of obvious um, hundreds of thousands, million dollars, hundreds of thousands at least dollars in uh, federal and a federal tax fraud scheme that lasted 15 years. I want to go to Kavita, but I see David sort of leaning towards the camera a little bit. And I was wondering if there was something he wanted to say in response to what Ryan said. No, I was just getting close to the camera so I could hear everything that Kavita was about to say. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Well, exactly. I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't blame you. That's why we all show up here. Um, Kavita, um, you know, having these different perspectives produces not just, you know, whatever the legal ramifications, it's got political ramifications. And the Republican Party, led by Donald Trump, but including his lawyers and others, have essentially come out with, see, this is all chicken shit. You know, they've yeah. essentially said this is not a big deal. And if this is the best they've got, it shows what a farce this is. Mm -hmm. And other people, Adam Schiff and others have said, See, this proves that this is a corrupt enterprise and just wait till we get going. Um, what, what's your, you know, somebody who's been in and around Washington for a long time, do, what, you know, what's your sense of the political ramifications of this? Well, I'll just say it actually builds on something Ryan said. I, I don't, what do I know? I'm not a legal scholar, but uh, I also did my share of listening to people in the last 24 hours. And one of them is, Preet Bharara, who's a friend, and he does know New York law, and he doesn't think Weisselberg will flip, and he thinks he'll be convicted. He went so far as to say, which I agree with, that this man is not an idiot. He's a seasoned kind of, he, he knows what he's talking about, and he knows what he did, and this isn't some kind of fine line of separation. But to that point, I, I do think politically, it's funny, there were more people in the kind of both Twitterverse um, outside of this topic who are more interested in reading about how screwed up, you know, the vice president's office is. And it's so much easier for Trump to say, this is chicken shit, doesn't matter. And so many people who want to not only believe that, 
but use that as an endorsement. And in fact, as a source of pride that obviously this is the man that should take us into, you know, the next greatest kind of generation for our country. So I, I don't think that the Democrats are winning from this. And I think if anything, they're losing for reasons that David's alluded to that Ryan, I worry that, um, we're all getting so kind of caught up in like the pedantics, which are very important for the actual legal case, but politically, I mean, I'm not kidding. Like more people seem interested in how screwed up Kamala Harris's staff is because that just makes for a better, more popular story that people want to buy into. And this just goes into what I think is, you know, we're dealing with a public who does not know fact and fiction, or fact from fiction. And I, I really think that's, it's been a problem in the pandemic. It's a problem now and we don't need to talk you've talked on the pod about the january 6 appointees that's why that's not going to have an impact or sway voters yeah so that's my answer yeah. david that there's one if i if i can jump in david there there, there is one, a, a key thing here too i mean i i think the politics of this will be somewhat shaped by whether this is it or this is the beginning or this yeah. is the start of something bigger but in either case mm-hmm. This has tremendous ramifications for a little institution called the Trump Organization. You know, if they're convicted of a crime or their CFO is convicted of a crime, it has a lot of uh, implications for them in terms of what they what they need to get bank loans, do other deals, refinance. You know, this in some ways could bring down the Trump Organization. Now, is that good or bad? Trump and his kids are out there grifting money in other ways these days mm-hmm. and this loss you know this this indictment uh certainly fits into trump's narrative that he's been persecuted they took the election away from him they're coming after him mm-hmm. all these pointy-headed liberals and academias and the only th- you know thing i'm waiting for is for them to uh, somehow uh, attribute this prosecution to critical race theory. Uh, but I'm sure they'll find a way to get to that, yes. right? Uh, so, you know, it, it sort of helps him with that base, but it could cause business issues. And I think, you know, to, if we want to talk, think about it politically, uh, the key question for the next few years and the next millennium might be, okay, there are 30% of the public or 25%, whatever it may be, that are Trumpian, authoritarians, whatever they want. They, maybe they'll become Josh Hawleyans um, and they're unreachable. You know, whether it's grievance, it's cultural warfare for them. It doesn't matter if Joe Biden gives them jobs or saves them with vaccines, which they don't like anyway. It, it doesn't matter. They are that group. They are, I would say they're lost. They think they're found. But nevertheless, the question is the other 30% who, some who lean in that direction, some who are more in the middle, some who don't give a damn about any of this stuff, how this plays with them. They may not care, they may not pay attention to it. Uh, they may care more about jobs and vaccinations when 2024 rolls around or maybe even 2022. Um, but I, 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 you know, right now, I, don't, I agree with Kavita, this is not a, a win for the Democrats. Uh, it can be, you know, it can go in a lot of different directions. You know, Ryan, David brings up a really good point. Um, uh, the uh, one of the things that I think David K. Johnson said was the, 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 the outcome of continuing this prosecution and demonstrating that the Trump organization is a criminal enterprise or criminal in in many of its uh, manifestations could be 
putting the firm into receivership, essentially shutting it down. And and whether it's uh, legally that or 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 essentially the you know the the stink of all this pushes away banks and others that might be necessary to help them through the next couple of years. Uh, the big punishment of this could be um, uh, not something that happens in a jail cell, but economically, right? Yes. Um, and it's, you know, you mentioned Dan Goldman before. So Dan Goldman, who's been saying, this is the end of the beginning. This is the, this is all they've got. has also been saying it could be a death blow to the Trump organization uh, because how do they, for example, refinance these um hundreds of million dollar loans um, after they're just indicted and even more so if they're convicted. And I would just throw out there a thought, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure where the thought ends up landing, but of the 30% who are persuadable, those ones a little bit more in the middle, a lot of them I think, and those who voted for Trump, think of him as the successful businessman um, with all the connotations that comes with. And just as successful as the Trump organization is based on the brand of Trump, um, I think he might be based on the brand of the Trump organization. If that organization implodes as having been a criminal enterprise, having housed a criminal enterprise within it, uh, I could imagine that that does hurt his prospects uh, for whether he's running for uh, election again or just trying to be um, a central figure uh, within the Republican party. Uh, that seems to me more of what he's always tried to avoid is the, you know, that he's a big loser. Um, that it seems to at least uh, doesn't count in his favor uh, within that register um, at a minimum. Um, but I think it might actually hurt him in that regard. So let me flip this discussion a little bit because we've got, you know, limited amount of time here. And there are two other big stories that I want to get to. Um, uh, today that are relevant to the future of the Republican Party and politics, uh, and even more broadly to the future of democracy in the United States. One of them has to do with the fact that today um, Speaker Pelosi announced the members of the commission looking into the coup attempt that was orchestrated by Donald Trump and leaders of the Republican Party, um, even as uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy threatened Republicans were they to participate in this. Uh, and we already know that one Republican, Liz Cheney, is going to do so. Uh, the other thing that happened today was there were two Supreme Court decisions, one having to do with voting rights, uh, more broadly in the Voting Rights Act uh, with respect to a case in Arizona, um, and the second having to do with uh, transparency of uh, donations to nonprofit organizations, both of which came down heavily um, in a way that's consistent with the Roberts Court and not good for voting rights or uh, financing transparency in the U.S. What I'd like to do is the following. Kavita, if you have a comment on the Pelosi thing, fine, but I would like you to pose a question to David about the Pelosi thing. And Ryan, if you have a comment about the, the Supreme Court thing, please make it and then pose a question to David on that. Kavita. Oh, great. Okay. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so David, I'm, I, I have a 
gut feeling, I want to try to ask a question that I don't have a predictable answer to. And so on the January 6th commission, um, instead of asking you like what to do about all these Republicans that are like, who gives a shit and, you know, and McCarthy's kind of threats and what's happening, how do you actually think roll forward to the commission, their findings based on what we've seen, which I've been underwhelmed by with a 9-11 commission and kind of commissions of past. What are some of the scenarios coming out of that that you think uh, a Congress and a Biden administration will have to face? What are some of the more likely outcomes of the commission work product itself? Well, you know, there are two angles to, to, the, to the commission's work, two basic parts. Right, maybe you can break one into two of them, so maybe three parts. And and one is you know the security aspect, right, mm -hmm. which everyone agrees upon what went wrong. You know, intelligence coming in, whether the cops were prepared, why things, why why riot gear was locked up and not dispensed, the ability of the Capitol Hill police to deal with this at the time or to deal with future. I mean, that's something that that Senate and House committees have already worked on and had some, you know, pretty um, disturbing hearings on, including whether you know, what happened with the National Guard and what was ordered when and on the day of, uh, on the afternoon of January 6th. But that's one piece of it. The other piece is kind of like uh, what happened with the White House? What happened with, you know, you know, Kevin McCarthy's call with Donald Trump? What happened with, you know, Donald Trump, you know, uh, calling members of the Senate while this was going on and urging them to, to continue to, um, you know, try to thwart the certification. I mean, there's a lot of stuff there. I think, you know, that's a, a place where there's room for, let's call it revelations that might, you know, be front page news in a certain degree. Now there are revelations about Trump and they seem to come and go quite quickly and not sure how much they register politically, but I think knowing what happened there is really important from a historical perspective. And then I think, you know, the, the third, part of that, which is sort of a spinoff, would be, you know, what led to this point. And, you know, the, 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 um, the concoction and perpetuation of, of, of the big lie from Donald Trump, and to what degree um, people in the Republican Party or just conservative groups in general, um, you know, basically set the, set the stage, laid the, laid the um, the, you know, the kindling for the fire to come. Uh, I think there's there's still a lot there, um, and whether it's looking at organizers like Ali Alexander, who led the Stop the Steal movement, and or Oath Keepers, who have been um, indicted for conspiracy, actually for conspiracy, for coming to the Capitol with the express purpose to interfere. Uh, I think there's more work there because, you know, this is what I said about the Mueller report. And David might remember this, and I got you know, it got kind of boring over the years because I kept saying this. The Mueller report, Mueller's job was basically to find crimes and prosecute crimes. It wasn't to tell the full story. It wasn't to get the truth. He wasn't, that was very, that's always been Congress's job or it could be an independent commission's job. We're going to lay everything out to you. And a lot of things that are wrong may not be crimes or may not be crimes that you would prosecute because you can't, you're not sure you can get a conviction. But there's a lot of value. This is what the 9-11 commission did do and getting all the information out and telling the story well and so we have the fbi prosecuting the case now the justice department but there may still be a lot going on that a that a commission or now a congressional committee can tell us that may not end up in a, in a courtroom so i think 
there is, and, and I think that's important for historical sake. And as a journalist, I like I like I like to see that. Uh, you know what the what it means at the end of the day um, for politics. I don't know, but you know you have we still don't have the eyewitness accounts of what Trump was actually saying. Mm-hmm. You could bring people in and say he was laughing, he was toasting the people as they ran into the Capitol. That type of stuff, if true, will has the potential for to impacting some people, not a lot, but some. So I do think there is value in, in getting a thorough accounting of all this. Ryan, um, let's move to the Supreme Court. First of all, I'd, I'd be interested in how significant you think both decisions are, and then a question for David. Um. So I think the, I guess the, I think the Voting Rights Act decision is highly significant and it shows, uh, you know, the manifestation of John Roberts' multi-year mission to get the, the Voting Rights Act, the way it's being described, I think, accurately. Um, the other decision, um, I don't know as much uh, on it right now, but I was um drawn to David Cole, the legal director of the ACLU, um, saying that it's narrower than you might think. Um, So that was about the um, gutting of the California law that would have required uh, certain kinds of disclosures. And he said, well, you know, the disclosures were not to inform the public, but rather uh, for for their how they might vote, uh, but rather to inform the kinds of investigations. So it's actually narrow and they let stand. Um, what might be uh, required disclosures of PACs and campaigns and the like, as long as it's to inform the public how they're going to vote. So I think that the other decision might be narrow in a certain sense. But I guess, you know, the other thing that happened today, the third piece is that Justice Breyer didn't resign. <laughs> so, so the, and that's what I want to use as a pivot um, for David, which is if we do see this as the court showing its true fangs, that this really is a very conservative court with six justices lined up that way to gut something that we now, I think the American public understands right today because of what's trying, what they're trying to do on the Hill in terms of past legislation is the importance of voting rights. I guess one of the questions I think about that I think to ask you because you think about this uh, so deeply and you've thought about it in so many ways, what it means for our national politics that the Supreme Court appointments and federal judicial appointments are just really not a part of democratic primary campaigns um, and are not a real part of the ways that the democratic debates took place in 2020 and the way they took place in 2016. Um, And that for people like me uh, and law schools, we're always just perplexed that the question's not even asked about the appointments to the courts. Um, And here's the dramatic effect of um, the absence of that from you know, the yeah, I mean, Democratic it, it, uh, presidential campaigns. And what, what, and what can this break through? Or what do you think that, that says about that part of our politics? You know, for, for decades, uh, you know, Democratic activists, progressive activists have wanted, you know, to leverage the Supreme Court issue in, in elections, right? If, you know, if, if you um, vote for this person, you'll likely get this type of court, which will be a, B, and C, vote for that person. You might be able to protect abortion rights if that's what you care about and do something on voting rights. Um, and it, it really does seem to be the case that the that the right, particularly the evangelical right, 
just cares tremendously and is highly motivated on the issue of who serves in, in the court. Not just, they're sophisticated enough to know, not just in the Supreme Court, but throughout the federal bench. And so they were willing to, you know, literally hug and embrace physically uh, a guy who uh, is a liar, a cheat, extramarital affairs, and, you know, almost the most ungodly man who's ever served in the White House uh, because he gave them what they wanted with Supreme Court picks and just talked their talk and took their lists. Um, and there's no equivalent energy on the left in that regard. Now, I would sort of fold this into even the larger question, which is I do think we're in a moment of sort of crisis for democracy. You know, and I, and I think it's the Republicans who are, you know, trying to, you know, implement, they wouldn't call it this, but, you know, a political apartheid system where a minority of the country has majority control, whether it's through the Senate, which is disproportionately, um, you know, biased towards rural states and red states. Now it's repressing, uh, repressing the vote in a lot of places. So that again, uh, you know, from their perspective, a white conservative vote will count more than a, a black democratic vote. Uh, there, you know, and if you have, you know, disproportionate control of the Senate, you have disproportionate control of the judiciary, right? Because you control the, the judges. And so it, it's all a part of this. Now, um, to what degree this narrative is being told, you know, worries me because I, I, I certainly, we certainly see on the right, the energy for uh, Trump's authoritarianism and for overthrowing um, rules and norms and violating, even violating the law, uh, seems to be, is becoming pretty widely embraced by by even elected Republican officials statewide and, and at the national level. Uh, you know, we've done a good job, I think, of making voting rights a key issue um, for. I said we, I mean, Democrats, I think, have done a good job of making voting rights the key issue and Stacey Abrams, you know, getting that front and center. But it's part of a bigger thing that gets into the formation of the courts because you can pass these laws, you know, that, that, that try to protect voting rights. But if John Roberts, I don't know what the hell it is about him and the Voting Rights Act. He just really seems to despise it. But if, you know, they come out and they keep saying no and, and, and allowing these restrictions to, to, to stay, it, you know, it, it, it really is a way of moving towards this political apartheid system where only certain people, you know, get to vote. So I think the larger story has to be told and Supreme Court nominations are a part of that, but we've tried that. <laughs> the Democrats have tried making the Supreme Court nominations. I remember, like, you know, remember, you know, there's no difference between Hillary Clinton and Trump or between Al Gore and George W. Bush. And it was always like, just start with the court. <laughs> Big difference. That seemed a pretty basic point that still, till you know, didn't register or resonate with a lot of people left of center. Well, it certainly did right of center. So let me pose you a question, David, and then I'd be interested in Ryan and, and Kavita's comments on it or any last questions they have for you. But this is going to fall more in the vein of possibly um, psychotherapy 
for for for, <laughs> for you <laughs> for me yeah for me but okay, um, my rates are reasonable but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um mine aren't <laughs> um yeah no i, I recognize that could be it but um but you know we're in a in a moment here where democracy is slipping away and it has been for a while you know the roberts court with citizens united with shelby county with decisions like this has been eating away at it for a while um uh, gerrymandering has been eating away at it for a while um uh, mitch mcconnell and his you know you know jamming of the judiciary has been at it for a while but it's you know it's we're sort of heading towards a 2022 election, which to me is going to be even more important than the 2024 election. The odds are, you know, historical trends being what they are, that the Democrats will lose their majority in the House. Uh, and while there are perhaps five seats they could pick up in the Senate, they could also easily go the other way and 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 McConnell could be the majority leader. If McConnell's the majority leader and Breyer departs the scene or whatever, we know where that leads, a 7-2 court. Uh, we know where it leads in terms of other judicial decisions. We know where it leads in terms of other voting rights decisions. Um, I, I saw a thing today, you know, on, on this point that noted that I think it was four out of the current justices, four or five out of the current justices, were appointed by Presidents who got the minority of the vote in their first election lost the popular vote and approved by Senate uh, majorities representing the minority of the people in the United States. So this goes to your apartheid point. Meanwhile, when I talk to my progressive friends, they're like, how dare Joe Biden leave this green item out of the infrastructure bill? How dare Joe Biden not be addressing, you know, this aspect of immigration? Perfectly reasonable issues. But if we lose in 2022, if we do anything to weaken the case for Joe Biden, if we do anything that, that, that you know, accelerates this deterioration, there may be no coming back for it. And that's, I, I honestly, this is therapy. I honestly find myself not writing critical things about Joe Biden that I would otherwise write. Mm -hmm. Because to me, the issue of the day is how do you protect democracy? I think that is the fundamental issue. I think if you don't protect democracy, you can't do anything about climate change. You can't do anything uh, about housing policy. You can't deal with income inequality and all these issues. You, you know, it, it's hard to deal with um, police uh, brutality or with racial justice issues if you don't have democracy um and when you you know you, you, you i'm glad you raised gerrymandering and, and these other issues that are you know working towards this minority control of the power system one of my favorite stats is that the for the democrats to control the house in the last you know, couple of rounds they've always needed more than 50 percent anywhere between 52 and 54 percent of the national vote because of gerrymandering. So that means that the, uh, that the Republicans could gain control of the House and have only, only represent 48% of the public, which is the same thing that goes on in the Senate. Uh, 
yeah, I think these are, you know, tremendous issues. Now, I do think that there's been a lot less progressive criticism of Joe Biden for the things you mentioned um, than we might have seen in, 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 in previous years. That the threat of Trump, certainly during the campaign, and even the threat of Trumpism now, uh, in a in a Senate that's 50-50 and a House that you know has a very slim Democratic majority as well, is tempering some of the criticism from the most progressive uh, Democrats. I mean, Bernie says he wants six trillion dollars in infrastructure as opposed to you know you know 1.2 trillion, but you know he's not out there calling Biden. Uh, a capitalist stooge, right? He's, you know, it's, he's making the case. I don't think it's bad to sort of show that they're, you know, that Biden then for is maybe more in the middle. Uh, so while I do think that the threat to democracy is not clear enough and isn't enough of a central organizing principle, uh, that at least the, the dicey balance in Congress uh, is, is is tempering what some of the normal infighting that you would have, but you know that only gets you so far. Um, I think you know Biden and Biden himself, I believe, right now is just focusing more not on on, the, on this larger democracy and crisis narrative, but in the we delivered results or we are delivering results to you narrative. You know, getting the economy in a better place, getting people vaccinated, and so when things come around next year, I, I, I think he wants to say, look, look what we did. Now, that will work with certain parts of the, of, of, of the, of the population, but um, I'm not sure, it, you know, I'm not sure not directly addressing the crisis is gonna work in the long run, even though addressing it will make him sound hyper-partisan because um, it is a hard thing, I think, for a lot of people to, to believe and to accept that there are you know, a third of the public or, and, and an entire political party that wants to erode, if not destroy or undermine or hijack, whatever you call it, democracy. Um, so, you know, as a psychotherapist here, David, I would say uh, I would recognize your concerns. <laughs> I would say you're not crazy to have them. I would Thank say you. those concerns are not as bad as the larger concern, which you also recognize, uh, and that continuing to talk about the crisis before us is probably the best way to go about this. And I'll send you my bill in the mail. Yeah, no, I know what your bill's going to say, and I do want to encourage everybody to subscribe to the land, David's. This land, this land, this land, this land, David's uh, uh, newsletter. We've got about four minutes left, and we have two to Ryan and two to Kavita. Comment, question for David. Go ahead, Brian. Um, so just to maybe play off of that a little bit, I think it might be helpful for people to envision what a Kevin McCarthy uh, Speaker of the House might look like. Um, and he's given us a few tastes of it in the last 48 hours. So he's trying to deep six the select committee um, by threatening his own caucus for serving on it. Therefore, not after the truth and things that could actually protect the country. And at the same time, he has issued a statement to say that he is tasking Devin Nunes 
to investigate the NSA because of Tucker Carlson's conspiratorial claims that the NSA is targeting Tucker Carlson to try to take his show off the air. And Kevin McCarthy has tasked Devin Nunes to now investigate the NSA. Now he's just Kevin McCarthy and Devin Nunes is the ranking member. They can't really do much. But I think he's trying to in fact tell, tell at least his caucus who he will be. Um, in fact, try to even shore up the Tucker Carlson support is my sense of it, or who he will be as uh, speaker of the house. Um, just to get you to talk about what that um, yeah, and like, movie looks like. I believe it was today he gave a press conference uh, which he was asked if Trump had any responsibility for January 6th, and he refused to answer the question. When, if you might remember back in Jan during the impeachment trial, he said Trump was directly responsible. He wanted to censure him, not impeach him. It was a little his way out of this, but he was pretty tough on, on, on Trump for that. Um, and now it's like, didn't happen. Uh, this, you know, he's just completely. Uh, you know, has, has, has given in to the Trumpification, the Foxification of, of the GOP. I, you know, I get, I'm on all the email lists and I can see that the, uh, the NRCC, the National Republican Congressional Committee, which, you, you know, which is about electing members of the House, Republicans members of the House, uh, that which if he gets enough of them elected, he might become speaker, uh, you know, raises a lot of money with Trump. You know, he's right he, for his own campaign. He's using Trump as a fundraiser. So that's a big part of this. They want Trump to raise them money. So they have to, you know, be Trumpy in order to do that. Now, I think there's a good chance if the Republicans win the House, he may not be House Speaker. <laughs> you know, you know, whether mm -hmm. they go for Jim Jordan or whether they elect Donald Trump House Speaker, because you don't have to be a member of the House to be Speaker. You know, there are all sorts of crazy, I elect Tucker Carson Speaker of the House. I mean, there are all sorts of nightmare scenarios. <laughs> Uh, you you can come up with here, um, but I do you know you know you know you saw what happened with Liz Cheney. You see what's happening with Adam Kinzinger. There's just no room in this party for anyone who has any uh, distance between him and her and Donald Trump, and that's just where they are. And the fact that they still are within striking distance and might win the House um, with, with those circumstances, I think is pretty pretty frightening. The last two minutes to Kavita. Very, it's a very, it's a short answer, David. It's very clear. I was with Ryan that I was disappointed that Justice Breyer did not announce his resignation or we haven't heard inklings of it. Uh, tell me what's going on in his mind. If you could channel him through your UFO. That I don't know. I mean, I, you know, not that my tweets matter, but I kind of said, we have precedent. We have precedent, RBG and America Garland. Exactly. Precedent. You you understand precedent, Justice Breyer. And, you know, he's just, you know, he's living in another era when he says politics should not play a role in what mm -hmm. justices do. Now, this is what, I think this gets to the essence of, of the crisis that, that troubles David and, and the rest of us. And that is the rules only work when both sides accept them, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, why do people lie? People lie to get an advantage. And if you don't get punished for your lie, you kind of win. Mm -hmm. If the other person says, I'm not going to lie, that's against the rules. And so if you have Justice Breyer saying, well, I don't believe politics should play a role in all this. And the other side is like blocking 
nominations due to politics and sort of rigging the court in its favor and not playing by these, accepting these norms and playing by these rules, well, you're kind of a sucker. Uh, and the challenge is, you know, this is what, you know, Michelle said, when they go low, we go high. But, but, but you know, and I understand that. The problem, you know, the challenge is to, if they go low, how do you stop that from succeeding? You can, you know, go high if, you, if it works and, you know, don't, you know, break the law, don't do things that, that, that you know, that compromise your, you know, certain principles, but also recognize what the stakes are. Um, if, you know, if a guy's running around saying, I'm going to, you know, throw gasoline in your house and light a match, and you say, well, that's just against the rules. <laughs> that's not going to stop your house from being burnt down. So I think he's, you know, misguided and wants to, you know, live, you know, and, 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 and you know, what do you know? He's human. He wants to, you know, look at a world that gives him what he wants. <laughs> he wants, he obviously wants to stay on the court. And I think it's a terrible mistake um, for all the reasons that David outlined earlier that, you know, you know, if the court becomes seven, two, it's, it, you know, it's again, 20, 30, 40 years mm -hmm. of opposition to social progress or, um, support of measures that lead um, and, 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 and install and make more solid uh, this form of political apartheid that the Republicans are striving for. So I don't know, I wish I, you know, I think we all wish we could shake him and say, you've had a good run. You know, go, go, go back to Cambridge, go to Nantucket. Martha's Vineyard is really lovely this time of year. <laughs> it's lovely in October too. You can just, you know, you know, be there then. Yeah, it's another press. David Souter went off into the mm -hmm. Vermont, had a nice life. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, what you're saying, uh, David, reminds me of a comment that was made by a guy who's a complete lunatic, who still to this day is viewed as a respected national security strategist. So, you know, that tells you all you need to know about national security strategists. But one of the things he, he said to me a long, long time ago was, the dirtiest fighter sets the rules of the fight. And yeah. the, the Republicans realize that. But the corollary, which can be the David Korn corollary, is people do what works. And so, so you know, if, if fighting dirty wins, they're going to keep doing it. And yeah. the only way to stop them from doing it is that it has to start losing for them. Um, and, uh, you know, as you say, Joe Biden is making a bet that good governance and results is the way to stop them. Um, and that worries a lot of people who feel that, you know, that's not going to work in an era of voter suppression. The Republicans think obstruction and suppression is the way to get there. We shall see. We will continue to have this conversation. I will no doubt continue to need the therapeutic powers of uh, David Korn, as well as uh, Ryan and Kavita, uh, let me recommend one more time This Land, the newsletter at davidcorn.com. You can sign up there for it uh, and read about uh, all that we have been talking about here, plus uh, UFOs. If you want to know more about what we've got going on, go to the dsrnetwork.com. Uh, it talks about each of our podcasts coming up. We won't have one on Monday because of the holiday weekend, but we all will be back next week, and uh, we have many uh, a special uh, uh, podcasts around uh, books and breaking issues. And so go to, again, the dsrnetwork.com. And if you want to be a member, 
click membership, sign up, help us out there. Uh, in the interim, have a good holiday weekend, everybody. Uh, thank you, David. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Kavita. And uh, stay healthy, folks. Bye-bye. <laughs>